Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. Now, on last week's show, we had part of an interview with the entrepreneur and author Assad Razouk. And the whole chat I had with him was so interesting, I wanted to play you the rest of it in full. Assad is an entrepreneur based in Singapore. He runs a clean energy business and he's just published a book called Saving the Planet Without the Bullshit, What They Don't Tell You About the Climate Crisis. I read this and I found it a really refreshing take on issues around climate change. He argues that we don't need to worry about things like eating meat and flying, and certainly not about things like having children, which I know lots of people do worry about. So here's the interview in full. Do enjoy it. Okay, Assad, thanks for joining us. Before we talk about your book and your manifesto for saving the planet, I wanted to talk about you a bit, because often when we have climate book authors on the show. They're either journalists or they're climate scientists. But you're a bit different, aren't you? So can you give us a bit of your background? I do come from a slightly different background, perhaps, than many others who are not only concerned about the climate crisis, but also trying to do something about it. And that's because In my case, I actually woke up to the climate crisis from the front lines of doing something on the ground in Asia and watching that suffering. And that came through my day activity, so to speak, my day job, which is to run a renewable energy business in Asia Pacific. It was very much those experiences of actually seeing the suffering, which I actually start the book with in the introduction, which have led me over time to be both increasingly angry and increasingly active in trying to do something about it. I like the blend of, of anger and positivity that you, <laughs> that you have. You know, you have both those aspects, um, which we'll perhaps talk about in a bit. Now, the book is described as provocative in the blurb, saving the planet without the bullshit, what they don't tell you about the climate crisis. And I liked the difference in tone than you get in usual climate books. Do you want to give us a flavor of it? Give us some examples from the book. Yeah, look, I focused on a very broad audience, or rather as broad as possible. And I was thinking primarily of my 26-year-old son and his band of friends and how much information they were exposed to about doing the right thing in terms of sustainability and the environment and doing something about climate change. Yet, 
because of the sheer overwhelming volume of that information and because of the propaganda that's built into that information, I was always not happy about the confusion that people had about what is it that they should do that actually makes a difference as opposed to, for example, virtue signaling. And the book is filled with these examples. You know, some of them might be at first glance, you know, perhaps not very welcome by some of my peers in the climate space. For example, I built an argument that says that citizens should fly without feeling guilty about flying. Mm. They should be careful if they're going vegan to save the planet. Vegetarianism has been with us for thousands of years and is to be respected, but more as a do-no-harm activity. And then kind of virtue signaling with it in the climate space is fine, but just be aware that you're not actually making much of a difference, and so on. Well, can we dig into those a bit? Let's take going vegan first, because, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree that there is, it's worthy doing it and talking about it in order to spread out the the decrease in eating meat that we we need across the world. So it's not quite just virtue signaling as as to making it more welcome and, and just more of a common thing to do and an easier thing to do. Um, and so as we've seen, we see so many restaurants now, everywhere you go, there's, there's vegan options. So it's becoming easier and, and talking about it can help facilitate that. And we do need to reduce the amount of meat we eat, don't we? I have all the respect in the world for individual choice. You should absolutely go vegan if that's what you think you should do. And perhaps you are making a difference. However, we should be aware at the same time that I would say the, the overwhelming majority of people around the world aren't going to go vegan. The global south is actually looking forward to eating more meat because it's a status symbol. And we often, I think, forget about the rest of the world in some of these debates. However, when you build in the rest of the world, right, you build a perspective that says, okay, I've gone vegan, so I've done something. I would like that very same person to then think, I understand this may not be huge in terms of an impact. Now, what do I do that could be huge? And on the subject of veganism in particular, I can tell you that protesting, for example, for the European Union to pass, which it did, laws that make directors individually responsible for deforestation in the supply chain of the products that they're selling us is vastly more powerful. That is one law with an amazing global impact that you're going to see play out over the next few years. And it just passed. We're talking two months ago. So that is something that comes through in your book, is that it's big companies, big tech, big agriculture, and and most of all, big oil that are the real problems. And that they, they are the ones that are really responsible for the mess that we're in. Yes. So fly less, sure, but at the same time, protest for the big levers to change. Go vegan, sure, but at the same time, 
join an NGO or support an NGO or people that are launching lawsuits, for example, against big polluters. Yes, it is very clear that there is where the responsibility for where we are sits and why we need to focus our efforts so that those responsible don't get away with it. And the honest truth is that today they are not only getting away with it, but they are minting money on the back of getting away with it. Yeah. And this is this is where you rightfully get angry with it. And I think that comes through. Let's dig into flying a bit more, though. Can you, you know, explain to people why we shouldn't feel guilty about flying? Well, there has been a documented 40-year rearguard campaign not to invest in decarbonizing flight. And this continues to this day through, for example, sustainable aviation fuels, which is just a big greenwashing device as far as I'm concerned. Meanwhile, the guilt feeling, so to speak, has been pushed away from those who manufacture planes, those who operate planes, and those who regulate them and tax them, for example, by not taxing jet fuel, down to me, the consumer who's supposed to fly shame you, my friend and or family member or customer. And I think that's completely crazy for two reasons. Number one, once again, the responsibility sits very clearly somewhere where people are not affected by you flying less. And then number two, the fact that flying more is once again an overwhelming feature in the rest of the world, because it doesn't just matter what we think in Sweden or Denmark or in the UK. Of course it matters, but we need to then judge what we're doing in context. And, you know, the the numbers don't lie, right? If every single Swede, say, stopped flying, it's not going to make a difference to the growth of air travel. So we need to go fight the problem where it sits. And I take a lot of comfort from the fact that since the Paris Agreement, there's been over 100 new electric startups in aviation. And that is what we need. Because we will electrify flight, whether the the oil companies and the airlines and the aircraft manufacturers and the engine manufacturers like it or not. It's just that we have to fight back against their delaying tactics, which include pushing the flight shaming to you and me. What about Bitcoin? Because people get very worried about the amount of energy that goes into mining Bitcoin. And we run stories about this in New Scientist. But you're not worried about that, are you? No, I'm not worried about that because, once again, I hope that a reader of the Bitcoin chapter would see the energy consumption of the blockchain in context. I am far more worried about the fact that when you use oil, gas, and coal, you waste two-thirds of what you've pumped from the ground before you get anyone any useful energy, for example. And these two data points are in different stratospheres in terms of waste. I do think that we have to be very careful not to waste resources 
obviously. And I, I do think that theme does come out throughout the book. But it's an issue of where do we put our energies and our time? Because we all have jobs, we all have other things to do, we all have families, we all have hobbies, and we have so much time to actually take meaningful action on the climate crisis. So the question that I come back to again and again is what should I spend my time doing to effect meaningful action? And mm. frankly, as I argue in the chapter, you know, going out to criticize the blockchain community just isn't a very productive thing to do. Not if your objective is to push back against the climate crisis and contribute to bending an emissions curve, which is still rising to this day in 2023. So it's protest. It's, it's taking it to the people who are responsible is, is what we've got to do. It's protest. It's laws. It's lawsuits. It's mm. voting in countries that allow it, I suppose. But look at the power of the voter in 2022. I mean, the power of the voter is amazing. Voters in 2022 effectively voted for a pro-climate agenda in Australia, in Brazil, in yeah. France, and in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's incredible, right? And that in turn resulted in $700 billion of new funding for effectively going net zero. Now, surely... Our time is best spent on big, impactful actions like these. And voting, yeah, might seem a very small act, but it's an incredibly important act. Litigation as well, Rowan. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, we've spoken about that on the podcast a lot, about using lawsuits to enforce climate action. And you've got a, a chapter on that, Sue the Bastards. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that a bit? Well, I'll give you just one example, because it's probably one of the most powerful examples I can think of. Germany had for decades been very ambivalent about going net zero, and it was mostly to protect its big industrial base, especially its car industry and its manufacturing industry. And so it joined the bandwagon of the Paris Agreement by putting forward a net zero strategy, which young people in Germany didn't like. So what these young people did, some of them, is they filed a lawsuit that argued that Germany's net zero strategy is sacrificing their future in order to protect the present for those who are older than them. And guess what? The Courts in Germany agreed with them, handed down a verdict, which in two weeks forced Germany to effectively vastly accelerate its net zero ambition to an extent that we probably couldn't have even imagined six months earlier before that lawsuit. And that is just one lawsuit. That's the power of activism when it's properly channeled. And that's what we need a lot more of. You live in Singapore, and I wanted to talk about that a bit, because we hear a lot about the, the green credentials of Singapore. What can cities and countries learn from the way Singapore is operating in, in the renewable space? Well, I don't think Singapore was a particularly good example until very recently. 
frankly, because if you cycled, for example, in Singapore mm-hmm. as a mode of transport, as I do, you would have constantly coughed from driving behind diesel buses mm-hmm. with no bicycle lanes on their main roads as one example. And there is also a plastic epidemic that I refer to in the book, also in Singapore. So every city can do a lot more than it advertises doing. And invariably, the answer is very simple, right? It's public transport, the electrification of everything, promoting space for people to walk and cycle. And I think every city, frankly, just needs to start with that. Electrify scooters, for example, a huge problem in Asia. Electrify Mm -hmm. buses, electrify cars, and give people some space to walk and breathe clean air. One thing I like about your Twitter feed is that there's there's this good climate news thread that you post each week. Uh, It's like a roundup of all the really encouraging things that are happening. What's something that's giving you hope at the moment? I'm actually very confidently optimistic because I can see what's bubbling under the surface in terms of renewable energy deployment, in terms of fighting back against deforestation. I can also see the tens of millions of people who care tremendously and are trying to do something about it. So I'm actually quite confident that between now and 2030, we will have a lot more good climate news each week and that there will come a point when they will actually also accelerate. Now, what I worry about is, are we going to be able to stop heating at three degrees or preferably two degrees, obviously, compared to pre-industrial times? Or are we running late and not fast enough? So I think everything that we should be doing should start from an optimistic stance and then focus on accelerating what we're doing because we are doing an enormous amount of things correctly in many countries around the world. We just have to do it kind of bigger and faster. You've got your own podcast, The Angry Clean Energy Guy. Uh, Do you want to plug that for our, our audience? The podcast is really an expression of the same thing. I think when one does their day job, they still have some time to make a contribution to pushing back against propaganda and pushing back against the climate crisis. My podcast is really an effort to do that through straight-talking 20 to 25-minute episodes that, again, like the theme of the book, cut through the noise effectively and Mm -hmm. cut through the bullshit in the climate space. God knows we've got a lot of it. We certainly do. That was Assad Razouk talking about his book, Saving the Planet Without the Bullshit, What They Don't Tell You About the Climate Crisis. And as I say, it's well worth the read. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the show. Do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.